Well, I trust that you are As we gather on Sunday mornings, it is certainly time for us to remember that we do have an anchor and that storms may blow and it's easy for us to get off course, but it is good to be reminded that Christ is our sure and steady anchor. At this time, the kids can be dismissed to Children's Church, and if the rest of you will open your Bibles to the book of Mark with me. The book of Mark. If you do not have a Bible, I want to encourage you to use one of the pew Bibles that are near you. Uh, This is on page 836 in your pew Bible. As we think about this sure and steady anchor, the reason we need a sure and steady anchor is because we are consistently bombarded with bad news. As we just listen to, uh, turn on our, uh, the TV, turn on the radio, if we're scrolling through social media, if we are uh, just engaged in the uh, uh, things of everyday life, we see bad news all around us, and it can get, become really discouraging. I mean, think about if you turn on the news, there can be things that are discouraging, frustrating, frightening, uh, from the heated debates about our president, loving, hating, think he's crazy, think he's brilliant, to the circus of a hearing that's going on with the Supreme Court nominee. We read in the news, we see on TV about school shootings, another shooting this week in a place of business. As we think about issues of gender and sexuality and race, as we think of a lot of turmoil that's all around us, it is really easy for us to become discouraged. It's easy for us to just think, is there any good news at all? Because we're bombarded with so much bad news. Well, as we think about good news, good news is indeed oftentimes hard to come by. But we're going to spend time over the next several weeks and probably months spending time talking about good news. We're going to be talking about good news from the book of Mark and the reason that we have to hold fast to this sure and steady anchor, this opportunity that we have to have good news and to trust Christ. And we're going to see that as we work ourselves through the book of Mark. As we think about this book of Mark, if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, this is actually the title of the book. Uh, most of your books, most of your Bibles say the gospel according to Mark. Okay, that's what the editors have put on there. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Mark is actually a title to the whole book. Uh, it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as we would think about this, this big idea here, we see this idea, the beginning of the gospel, the word gospel means good news, it is good news of Jesus Christ, okay, we're going to talk about who he is, and the Son of God. Okay, so, title to the book is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all right? And our big idea this morning, our big idea this morning that I want you to begin with, this is in your notes, is that the book of Mark proclaims the good news of Jesus and calls us to turn, trust, and follow Him. As we begin this series in the book of Mark that I'm calling Follow the Servant, our big idea is that Mark proclaims the good news of Jesus and calls us, so there's a response on our part, to turn, to trust, and to follow Him. All right? And so I think we're having a little problem with the PowerPoint, so that will get up and going in a minute. Um, everything works before the service, I get here early, walk through my sermon, preach through it, use PowerPoint, everything works great, but then I think Satan shows up, right? And he always shows up back there in the back, in the, not the guys in the back and ladies, but the, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the um, but just technology, uh, it's a wonderful thing. But I will, uh, I will repeat things so you're following along well. So first, next point in your outline is this, is that the book of Mark was written by a guy named John Mark from the perspective of Peter. 
The book of Mark is written by John Mark from the perspective of Peter. If we would see what's going on, the church history would tell us this, and we'd also see, we'll see things in Scripture that will teach us this, that John Mark had a very close relationship with the Apostle Peter. Peter, who was with Jesus from the time he began teaching all the way through his crucifixion. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was one of the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. When Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, Peter was the first preacher in preaching on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Peter has all this information and experience with, uh, with Jesus. And he shared that with, with Mark. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verse in 1 Peter 5:13, Peter describes him as my son. Now, he's not a biological son, but he's a son in the faith. That whether he came to faith under Peter's ministry or just because he spent so much time with Peter, he sees him as a spiritual son. And this close relationship with Peter provides the content for the book of Mark. Uh, Mark was not an, a disciple, was not an eyewitness to most of the events. And so what we read comes from the experience of Peter. But we read about Mark in a couple different times in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, chapter 12, uh, turn there with me. We'll look. There are a couple of verses here. Keep your place in Acts and turn towards the back of your Bible, uh, the book of Acts. And we're going to look at chapter 12. And Acts chapter 12 is on page 920 in your pew Bible. And we're actually going to look at the next page at 921. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. What's going on is that Peter has been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the religious leaders don't like this. They have imprisoned him. And although he's in prison, God rescues him from prison. An angel breaks him out of prison. And Peter it goes to house. And it tells us this in chapter 12, verse 12. This is Peter. When he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, and while they were there gathered together and they were praying. So the, Mark's mom was apparently an early believer that probably had some uh, prestige, had some wealth to be able to have a gathering in her home. They had a prayer meeting in this home, so she clearly was a believer praying for Peter's release from prison, and God answered that prayer. He, he brings him out of prison. Uh, you can read that rest of that passage later, but it kind of chuckles because Peter's showing up there and he's saying, hey, let me in. And uh, they're like, wait a minute, we're praying that Peter is going to be rescued from prison. We're busy. He's like, I'm the guy. All right, you can read that later. But we see John Mark here that he is um, a little bit of background about him. Now, look on down to chapter, chapter 12, verse 25. We see Mark again. It says, and Barnabas and Saul, again, these are two early church leaders, uh, they returned from Jerusalem, and when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so John Mark is not only his mom's Mary, they were having this prayer meeting there, but Paul and Barnabas, that Saul and Barnabas, as they're going to travel on missionary journeys, they're going to take John Mark with them. Okay, so we learn a little bit about Mark through that. If we would look at other passages, other things we would learn about John Mark in Colossians chapter 4, verse 20, we learn that he is the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He was a church believer. He sold some property for the early church to be able to, uh, to grow. And uh, so Barnabas is called his name as a son of encouragement, and he's a cousin of Mark. 
As we said, that Mark went on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. As they're traveling, that ministry got very difficult. And part of the way through that trip, Mark bailed out on them. Mark bailed out. He, he, for whatever reason, we're not told in Scripture, but things were difficult and Mark bails. A little later in the ministry, when Paul and Barnabas, they're thinking about, let's take another missionary journey. We want to spread the gospel. We want to get, things, get the word out there that Barnabas' idea is, hey, let's take Mark. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? We're not take Mark. He bailed on us last time. And the scriptures tell us in the book of um, Acts, chapter 15, that Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement about whether or not to take Mark that they went different directions. They both kept serving the Lord, but they just had such a serious disagreement, they went different directions. And you can kind of see both sides of that. Paul's like, we've got work to do, and if Mark's going to just bail on us, that's going to create a hardship. We need to take somebody reliable so that we can do this work. But we see Barnabas, the son of encouragement, saying, man, Paul, he, he blew it. Yes, he blew it, but let's take him along and he'll grow. We'll, he'll do fine for us this time. But they have a disagreement and go different directions. A little bit later, we read about Mark again, and this is from the mouth of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so several years pass, and Paul says of Mark, he says that Mark became very useful to me, that he's very useful in the ministry. So we see that Mark, although he bailed on that early missionary trip, that he was restored and became a very useful servant in the, uh, uh, within the church. Right? So those are some things that we are, are learning about Mark. All right? Well, as we see about what is the book, the bar- book was written then about 25 years after Jesus' death. Mark's a believer. He understands the resurrection of Jesus. He's hearing Peter talk. Uh, several years have passed, and um, he, he's going to write down what Peter has told him about the life of Jesus. And so we believe that the book was written probably around A.D. 55 to 60. So it's a very early book. It's probably the earliest of all the Gospels. Okay, it's the earliest of the Gospel. And most all of what we're going to read in the book of Mark, we could also find in the books of Matthew and Luke, which are called the Synoptic Gospels. And as we see this, what purpose was Mark written? Next point on your outline is this, that Mark was written to a Roman audience... So it's written to a Roman audience, to a group of people who, who are Gentiles. They're not, uh, they're, they're not believers. He's writing to persuade them of the gospel. He is writing to a Roman audience and presents Jesus as a servant. It presents Jesus as a servant. And if there's a key verse in the book, it's going to be 10, chapter 10, verse 45. And turn there with me. Mark chapter 10. Verse 45. And I would encourage you to underline this verse. This is a, a, worth, a, a verse worthy of underlining in your Bible. I believe it gives us a big picture. If you want to summarize what is the book of Mark all about, I believe it is this. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, this is on page 847 in the Pew Bible. And it tells us about this the early, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here it tells us why he came. It says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, so Jesus, he comes not to be served, although he's the Son of God, although he's the Messiah, although he's the King of Kings, he did not come into our world to be served, but to serve and to give his life. 
Mark 10, 45. And as we think of that, is our PowerPoint working yet? All right. I got a picture for you that we'll have to show you later, all right? And it's a cute little cartoon, and you'll remember the theme of Mark as a servant. You'll remember it forever based on this little picture, if we can get it going, all right? So if we get that going, we'll show that to you here shortly. But as we think about this idea, the things about Mark, the book of Mark is unique from Luke and Matthew because it doesn't have a genealogy. Okay? It, it doesn't have a genealogy. Now, Mark is presents Jesus as a servant. Now, if you think through that, that kind of makes sense. Because do you care about the genealogy of a servant? Well, no. Now, in Matthew, Jesus is presented as a king. You need to know the genealogy of a king? Now, that's important. In the book of Luke, Jesus is presented as the perfect son of man. If he's this perfect son of man, we want to see his genealogy. And the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke goes all the way back to Adam. But in Mark, we don't have a genealogy. And this absence of the genealogy in the book of Mark makes sense to us when we understand that Jesus is a servant. Because we don't care about the background of a servant. We care about, does a servant serve? Is a servant able to do his job? And so a key word that we will see, if the key, if the key verse is Mark 10.45, the key word in the, book of Matt, in the book of Mark is the word immediately. It's the word immediately. It shows up 41 times in this book. Immediately. Things are happening all the time. And it's going, it's as though in, our, in this, this book is this, we have a scene and Jesus does something and we have a next video, then, then it happens, something else happens, something else happens, and then it just happened real quickly. And so it's this pushing together of all these video clips of what Jesus has done. And we see the word that immediately, 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 Jesus is working. And we think about a servant, that's what we care about. That's what we care about when it comes to Jesus being a servant. As we think about that as well, as Jesus being a servant, we would expect to see a lot of miracles in the book. And we do. There are 20, around 20 miracles, depending on how you count things, 20 miracles in the book of Mark. And this is distinct from the other Gospels. The other Gospels have miracles, but they seem to be much more focused on the teaching of Jesus, on all the different teachings that he has. And so Mark is focusing on the works of Jesus more than the words of Jesus. And again, why do we expect that's the case? What's our theme? Jesus is a servant. And if Jesus is a servant, we're not really concerned about the words of a servant. We're concerned about the works of a servant, right? So as we think about this idea of Jesus being in the works of a servant, these miracles show us that Jesus is a servant, but more than that. So we got our screen up here. I think we've got our PowerPoint. All right, we've got a couple of those points. Now to the picture. I've got to get the picture. Here is it. What's the theme of the book of Mark? Jesus is a servant. Okay, here. Now this is a groaner, so I'm telling you ahead of time. All right, here's our picture. All right, we have a big boat in the back, and our big boat looks like an ark. And it's got an M on it. So this is actually an M ark, or a, this is Mark. So that reminds us this is the book of Mark. And sitting down for dinner, we have an aardvark, an anteater. And we have a guy who's dressed as a waiter, and he is going to present that ant to the anteater. So what we have here is in the book of M. Ark, Jesus is presented as a serve ant. Okay, there's the groans I was waiting for. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's really cute. 
But that's the idea. So, in the book of M. Mark, Jesus is presented as a servant. Jesus is a servant. All right? Does that picture help? All right. Okay. I know. I know it's kind of corny, but it is helpful. Right? Education. We want to help you to learn these things. And he's a servant, so it's more focused not on his genealogy, not on his words, but his works. And we see these works of Jesus. And one of the things we see is that we're told over and over in the book of Mark that Jesus taught, but we're not told what he taught. For instance, turn back to Mark chapter 1. We see this in a number of instances. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21, this is on page 836. So what we're going to see is we see all throughout the book, we're told that Jesus taught, but we're not told what he taught. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, verse 21 And they went into Capernaum, and immediately, there's our word, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. And so, Jesus is teaching, it's really significant teaching, and it's teaching that Jesus, and they're amazed at his authority, but it doesn't tell us what he taught. We look again, we'll look a little further down in verse 39. Chapter 1, verse 39, it says, And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Tells us what he did. Earlier, he's teaching the word of God with authority. Here we see him with authority. And in this authority, what is he doing? That he is, um, he is teaching, he's casting out demons. So he has great authority, right? And let's look again. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So again, Jesus is teaching, Jesus is teaching, Jesus is teaching, but then it's talking about his works, because it says in verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and Jesus is going to heal this guy. Okay, one other verse. Look at verse 13. Mark 2, 13. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was what? teaching them, right? So the point I want us to see is that Jesus is a servant. He's a servant. No genealogy. Things happen immediately. We're focusing on his works, not his words. His words are recorded in the other gospels. That's why we have a multitude of gospels, these four different gospels, to help us to understand all that Jesus is and all that he did and all that he taught. But Jesus is a servant unlike other servants. Because Jesus is a servant who is teaching with authority. Jesus is a servant who casts out demons. He is a servant who heals diseases. He is a servant who raises the dead. He is a servant who calms storms. He is a servant who is at work in doing things that are supernatural. He even has authority over death. And we're thinking... What kind of servant is this? I mean, who has this kind of authority and serves others? And that's what we're going to see in the book of Mark, that Jesus, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus. And this book doesn't just reveal this identity to Jesus as a servant, who we, but he also calls us that he is a servant that we are to follow that we are to follow, that we are to repent, that we are to turn, that we are to follow him. And because of that, we would see the book of Mark, our book of Mark, as a biographical sermon. What we mean by a biographical sermon, a biography is a book written by somebody about somebody else. 
And in some ways, the book of Mark is a biography, but most biographies are just written to give you all the details of somebody's life. Mark isn't writing just to give us the details of his life. He is writing for a purpose that we would repent, believe, and follow Jesus. He's telling us these facts so we do something with it. So Mark is a biographical sermon written by John Mark, written to a Roman audience. Immediately is the key word. It's showing us that Jesus is a, what do we present Jesus as? He is a servant, a servant. So as we see this, this fits with where we've been in our, our past series about a fit church. Because what does a fit church do? A fit church believes the good news, acts on that good news, and follows Jesus. That's who we are seeking to be, a fit church who believes, who follows, who turns, who trusts Jesus. Well, back to Mark 1. Mark 1.1, the book begins, as we've said before, with a title. It begins with a title. And the word gospel, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel means good news. The word is, the Greek word is euangelion. And so, for instance, it was used in the Old Testament or in the New Testament times as a military victory is won. They would send a messenger and the messenger would bring euangelion, good news, to the king and to the people saying, victory has been achieved. The word euangelion was also used at a birth announcement. There, Caesar Augustus, who was going to be the new emperor of the Roman Empire, at his birth, they spread the euangelion, the good news, that the emperor has been born. And it's the same word that we're told about Jesus. That Jesus, is his coming is euangelion, it's good news to us. And so what we read, this is good news. It's really good news. The news that we read about in Mark is life-changing, world-changing news. Jesus has entered into our world. And as we begin to see all the impact that he has had in our world, we realize this is good news. And what we realize in this, too, is that the gospel means good news. We also see that in this, Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. His name literally means Yahweh is salvation. It's in, in the Hebrew, it's the same name, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus is salvation. And we are told, why, Je- why was Jesus named Jesus? Keep your place here and turn back to the book of Mark, I mean, book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, why is the Son of God named Jesus? Why didn't they name him Bill? Why didn't they name him Steve? Why didn't they name him Fred? Why, why Jesus? And we see back in Matthew when Mary has become pregnant through the Holy Spirit. is this virgin birth thing going on. And Joseph, who's her fiancé, finds out she's pregnant and thinking, come on, honey, I'm supposed to believe that you're pregnant because of the Holy Spirit? I can't believe that, honey. And he's going to put her away. He says he's going to put her away silently. But... But, but, but he has a vision, and God reveals to him that this is indeed what happened. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse 20, this is on page 807, it says this, But he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son and you will call his name what? 
Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Why is the Son of God in the flesh named Yeshua? Why is he named Yahweh saves? Why is he named Jesus? Because his ministry, his mission has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for us. Jesus is the Savior. And so, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in, back in the book of Mark, that his name Jesus means Savior. He is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. Christ is a title. He is the Messiah. He, Messiah, Messiah and Christ both come from the same idea. It's a, it's a word, anointed one, Mashiach in the Old Testament. And it's the anointed one. It's God's chosen one. And so in the Old Testament, the people are waiting and waiting and waiting for this Messiah to come, this anointed one that God was going to use. They've been waiting for this. And he comes, and they're no longer speaking Hebrew, calling him Messiah. They now speak Greek, and they call him Christ. And they're saying to us in this introductory, that introduction, that Jesus is the Savior, and he is the long-awaited Messiah. It also tells us in the beginning, the, go- the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Son of God reveals to us the relationship of the Father with the Son. That the Father is eternal, and you can't be an eternal Father without having an eternal Son. And we see in that pictures of the triune nature of our God, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And we see Jesus is presented to us as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the eternal Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And that is what we're revealed to in this title. And as we begin then, we read this. So the title begins. Now, as we begin in verse 2, it says this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So, as we begin here, so we've got the title, the beginning, and then it starts to talking about who, as it is written in Isaiah the what? Prophet. What's a prophet do? A prophet's talking about what's going to happen in the future. And, and here it's talking about Isaiah the prophet. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is the beginning of Jesus, his ministry, it's happening before the New Testament even starts. That, that the work of Jesus is talked about back here in the Old Testament. And so what we see is this idea, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news starts before the ministry of Jesus. The good news of Jesus begins before Jesus is even on the scene. And it starts in this passage, it's talking about Isaiah the prophet. And Isaiah says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. So what's going on here? Well, let's look at this. This is actually a scrunching together of two different prophets. The prophet Isaiah, who's the major prophet, and then Malachi, who's one of the minor prophets. Because Isaiah is a major prophet, that's why he gets the notation here. And it puts these two prophecies together. And let's look at them. We're going to turn back in our Old Testaments to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to, this in your pew Bible is on page 599. And what I want to see in this is how 
400 years. Actually, Isaiah is written about 700 years. Malachi, about 400 years. So centuries before Jesus comes onto the scene, this good news is starting. So, so how does this work? So let's read it. Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read the first few verses of this. It says, Comfort my people, says your God. Comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry that warfare has ended, that iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. And so warfare is over, sins are pardoned, God's given some judgment. It says in verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert highway of our God. Okay, that's, what, that, that's what Mark picks up. But let's read on. Every valley should be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. And uneven ground shall become level. And rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it together. And the mouth, the, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, in that prophecy, prepare the way... When the Lord comes, does it sound like it's going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Let's, let's, look, let's look at it again real quick, all right? In verse 4, every valley, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, uneven ground shall become level, rough places plain. Okay, so everything is hard, is going to become easier. And then in verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. That sounds like a good thing. Well, God's glory is showing up. All flesh will see it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so he's saying, God's coming. The Lord himself is coming. And it's a good thing. But let's turn to Malachi. Let's see how he puts this together, the book of Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament, written 400 years before Jesus comes onto the scene. God has not said anything to his people for 400 years after the book of Malachi. This is on page 802 in your pew Bible. We're looking back 400 years, 700 years in these prophecies of Jesus and what's he all about. He's uh, preparing the way for him. In chapter 4 of Malachi, as we see this, actually it's verse three, chapter 3, I'm sorry. Chapter 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way. Okay, same idea that we're seeing in Mark. He will prepare the way. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. His glory is going to be revealed. He's going to come into his temple. And the Lord you seek shall come, suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger, the messenger that he is sending, of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now listen to this verse. Behold. Who can endure, who can stand when he appears? This is, this is saying, okay, God's coming, and who can take it? And, and he says, because he's going to describe it, because for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Here's what he's saying. Like the Lord's coming. And there's this glory. It's going to be a good thing. He's going to come into his temple. But he's coming like a refiner. 
And what a refiner does, like iron ore or gold ore or silver, and so it's got all the contaminants and all that in it, and heats it up, and, it, and, and they, they bring it so that, the, so that all of the, the uh, byproducts float to the top, and they skim that all off so that the metal becomes very, very pure. And it's saying that the Lord is coming as a refiner. He is going to, in some ways, he's going to judge the people to purify them. Now, so, he's coming. It's a good day, but it's a scary day because there's this refining going on. How should you respond? Well, let's go back to Mark and see what happens. So, all this is prophesied. This one's coming. This messenger's coming who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. In verse 4, then, it says this. That John appeared. Okay, that John appeared. And, and, and what we see this is, what we're going to see is that John the Baptist is going to fulfill these promises. Okay, so somebody's coming in verse 2 and 3, and who shows up in verse 4? John. Right, so we're following this. John appears, and what does he appear doing in verse 4? Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were being baptized by the river Jordan, confessing their sins. What we see in this is that as, Paul, as, as, as John preaches, he's preaching this, this baptism of repentance. Why a baptism of repentance? Because the Lord's coming. If the Lord's coming, what needs to be happened? I, need, I better be ready. I better be ready if the Lord's coming. And so John's saying to the people, repent, turn from your sins, confess your sins, and be baptized to identify that you're identifying with this message, that you are, are seeking to be pure before the Lord when He comes, so that when He comes, His work of purification won't have to take place because I'm already pure. And so they're seeing this baptism, and John is at work in this, and John is baptizing people. He's preaching the message of the gospel and what we see Jesus or John doing is he's preparing the way he's preparing the way for Jesus by preaching this message of baptism calling people to confess their sins as a result of this it says to us that all of Jerusalem and Judea are coming to him I mean we could say this in some ways like in our culture we could say John was a rock star Everybody's coming to see John. I mean, here's the deal. All of Jerusalem and Judea, where is he baptizing them? What does it say? Where, what location? By the Jordan River. Okay, we know on a map where the Jordan River is. It says they're coming from Jerusalem, and Judea is like the countryside. They're coming for Jerusalem and Judea to be baptized. We can draw a map, and on the map we can figure out how far it is. Everybody's all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, everybody's coming. From Jerusalem to the Jordan River, it was 21 miles. You think, 21 miles? I mean, that's like, that's Lafayette. That's easy. Why is that a big deal? Because why is it a big deal? They don't have cars. They don't have highways. They don't have all this. 21 miles, this, it is a commitment for them to go and hear John preach, and they're listening to John preach. And why is John so popular John's popular because John is a fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises that he is going to prepare the way for this one who's coming, preparing the way for the Lord. 
He's preaching about God coming. The people have been waiting for this. God's been silent for 400 years. And now he's speaking again. And so the people are listening. And and as I think about this eagerness of the people to hear the word of God, sometimes I'm challenged in my own life and oftentimes in our life of the church about how serious are we about hearing the word of God. I mean, think about 21 miles in a wilderness kind of an area. It's a desert-type area getting from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. It's 21 miles, an elevation of 4,000 feet difference. It's a hard trip going to hear John. And oftentimes it's just easy. I'm just going to stay in bed this morning. I've just got too much going on to go to church. I've just got too much going on to go to a Bible study. I'm just too busy. And how often we're guilty of far just of, of neglecting opportunities we have to hear the word of God. Well, the beginning of Jesus. It happens, starts all the way back in the Old Testament. God's been silent for 400 years. John shows up on the scene. He's preaching, and as he preaches, people are like, whoa, this guy's telling us something significant. People are repenting of their sins. They're being baptized as a result of that. And what happens next in verse 6? We have a short little verse. It says, now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate, wild lo- ate locusts and wild honey. You read that, it's like, why are we talking about his wardrobe? I mean, why are we talking about what John's wearing? Well, the reason we're talking about what John's wearing is because John's wardrobe points us to Elijah of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Elijah. And we would look at some passages in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. They describe Elijah as he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. Elijah was a prophet who was calling Israel to turn back to God. Who was dressed like John's dressed. And so as the people would be coming and listening to John, they're seeing John and they're being, being reminded of Elijah and that, that, that John is like the voice of Elijah for our generation. It's a new generation. And in the old generation, when Elijah was preaching, nobody listened. Nobody listened to Elijah. At one point, there's this, they're on this mountain, on Mount Carmel, and there's this battle between, between God and the, between the prophets of Baal. And he says to the Israelites, Hey, Israel, listen, if Baal is God, if, he's, if this false God, if he's God, serve him. But if God is the true God, then serve him. And he's saying, get off the fence. And the end of the verse says, the people said nothing. They didn't respond. Now, the rest of that story is pretty cool, what God does to convince them of what the true, the true God is. But oftentimes, that they're wavering between these opinions. They're not making a decision. And John shows up and confronting the people with the same thing, which I think he confronts us with, is, are you going to stay on the fence? Or are you going to get off the fence and truly follow God? Because it's easy for us, just like it was in Elijah's days, it's just like it was in the days of, of John the Baptist, to be thinking, you know, I've got my life over here, and you know, I kind of like it over here, and if I were to get real serious about following God, some things might have to change, and I think I'm just going to come to church and be a part of what goes on at church and some of that, but I'm not like, going to be like super committed. I'm not going to be like crazy, because I don't want to be that, but, but I know that God's, I mean, I, I believe He's real, and I believe the Bible and all that kind of stuff, and we're, we're sitting on the fence. 
And Elijah called the people, get off the fence. If you're not going to serve God, then don't serve him at all. If you're going to serve God, serve him with your all. And John's message was the same. And people were responding to John's message, unlike Elijah. They're responding. They're being baptized. They're confessing their sins. They're realizing they, they want to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And so John prepares us for this. And we're told in the book of Malachi as well, in chapter 4 of Malachi, that Eli, before the Son of God comes, that who's going to come? Elijah. And later in Jesus' ministry, people are asking Jesus about, I thought Elijah was supposed to come before you came. You're the Son of God. I thought you were supposed to come. And before that, Jesus tells him in Mark chapter 9, he says, Elijah did come. Not in reincarnation. Elijah didn't show up as John in reincarnation, but in fulfillment. So John fulfills these Old Testament promises. He fulfills these Old Testament promises. His clothes point us to Elijah. By the end of our passage, we see, too, that John points us to someone greater. Look what he says in verse 7 of Mark 1. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is pointing us to someone greater, which is significant because in Matthew, listen, in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, who's that? That's all of us. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. Think of the greatest superstar. Think of the greatest uh, world leader. Think of the greatest musician, the greatest athlete that you can think of. And think, man, they're great. And it says, listen, there's nobody born of a woman who's greater than John the Baptist. And this is coming from the mouth of the Son of God. And yet, what does John do? He doesn't point any attention to himself. He deflects it all to the Lord. He talks about one who's coming after him. He says, I'm not worthy, in our context, says, I'm not worthy to carry his shoes. I'm, not, I, I'm nothing compared to who he is. And this is the one Jesus says is the greatest man that lived. And why is that? Because Jesus is the servant who is the Son of God, who is the Lord. He is God himself. And John understands that. And so John humbles himself. John says that, that I baptize you with water. Listen, I'm just baptizing with water. He's going to baptize you with the very Spirit of God. And we're going to see that when Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell people like us, to indwell us as believers, to be able to live out the life that he wants us to live. And so in this picture, what do we see from this book in these first opening chapters? Their first opening verses. Well, look, in 1 1, what do we learn about Jesus? He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. We would look down in verse 3, and it says, Prepare the way for the Lord. This is God Himself. Old Testament prophecy. And then down here at verse 8, we see Jesus is not only Yahweh is salvation, he's not only the Messiah, he's not only the Son of God, he's not only the Lord, but Jesus is also the, the, the Holy Spirit baptizer. 
He's the one who has the authority to send the Holy Spirit to us. And yet He's a servant. He has come to serve us. Well, as we continue through this book of Mark, we're going to learn more and more about the identity of Jesus. We're going to listen to some of His words, but we're going to look at His works. And we're already seeing that there's, we're going to be called to respond. And the response for us, the call to us to respond is the same, is repent, turn from your sins, confess your sins, and follow Jesus. And I'm convinced that many of you, most of you here, I'm convinced have, have, have confessed your sins and trusted Jesus as your Savior. I, I rejoice in that. I would encourage you, follow Him. No fence sitting. Follow Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. For some of you today, maybe still trying to figure this out, I want to encourage you to continue to read in the book of John to see who is Jesus. Is He indeed who He says He is? And if He is who the book says He is, if He is indeed God who's come to serve and to give His life for you, I would encourage you today to surrender your life to Him. To trust Him as your Savior. To get off, stop following yourself, but repent, turn, trust Him, and follow Him. Well, how are you responding? In just a moment, we're going to receive our offering. And as we do that, I want to encourage you to examine yourself. Are there sins you need to confess? Are there unconfessed sins you know that you've just not dealt with with God? I would encourage you during our offering time, talk to God about those. Are you moving in a direction that is contrary to the word of God? I would call you during our offering time, I encourage you to repent, to say, God, forgive me of this, and I'm going to seek, I'm going to seek to turn and follow you. Do you need to commit, consider your commitment to him? Maybe you're following him, but you're seeing yourself maybe kind of on the fence a little bit and just giving God just kind of extra time that you have rather than serving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I encourage you, as we begin this gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we would hear these initial opening verses and that we would respond in faith. Well, if ushers will come, we'll receive our morning offering. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are rejoicing that you have given us good news. And this good news is your Son, Jesus Christ fully God and fully man who has clothed himself with, 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 with flesh to come not to conquer, not to sit as a king, but to serve us. And God, we thank you that you're a God who loves and a God who serves. And I pray that we would believe your truth, that we'd respond in faith, that we would respond in obedience, that we would confess, repent, and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.